Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, October 18th. In today's news, President Trump awards the G7 summit to one of his struggling resorts, potentially violating the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. The Turks celebrate because they feel like they rolled Trump in negotiations over Syria. And a crazy gun battle overnight shows how weak the central government is in Mexico as El Chapo's son goes free. But first, the big idea. Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney admitted during a news conference yesterday that Trump withheld nearly $400 million in military aid in part to pressure Ukraine to pursue an investigation that could benefit him politically. Acknowledging a quid pro quo that is at the heart of the impeachment inquiry and that the president and his allies have vigorously denied for weeks. Mulvaney defended the president's actions as commonplace and appropriate, saying, quote, get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. He really said that. The acting chief of staff spoke as Trump's own ambassador to the European Union gave what would become a nine hour deposition. Gordon Sunland told House investigators that the president had outsourced U.S. policy on Ukraine to Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, a decision he says he disagreed with, but carried out anyway. Giuliani was pushing the Ukrainians to investigate interference in the 2016 election and Joe Biden. Mulvaney brushed aside the concerns expressed by Sunland and said there's nothing wrong with deputizing a private attorney to conduct public diplomacy. You may not like the fact that Giuliani was involved, Mulvaney said, but, quote, it's not illegal. It's not impeachable. The president gets to set foreign policy and he gets to choose who does so. Mulvaney told reporters that Trump definitely wanted the government in Kiev to investigate the debunked conspiracy theory that a hacked Democratic National Committee computer server was taken to Ukraine in 2016 to hide evidence that it was that country and not Russia that interfered in the presidential election on Trump's behalf. Mulvaney denied that the aid was contingent on a separate Ukrainian investigation of Joe and Hunter Biden, another separate potential quid pro quo that congressional Democrats are looking into. Later, after Trump's lawyer, Jay Sukolow, Bill Barr's Justice Department, and top Republicans publicly distanced themselves from Mulvaney, the White House scrambled to walk back his comments, issuing an official statement last night that said, let me be clear, there was absolutely no quid pro quo. But during the presser, Mulvaney embraced a classic Trumpian tactic, saying the quiet and potentially illegal part out loud. But he's done this before. Just last year, when Mulvaney was running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he told lobbyists and executives for the big banks that campaign contributions were the way to get access. He literally said, quote, we had a hierarchy in my office in Congress. If you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I did not talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. He wasn't joking. Other presidents would make an official resign after saying publicly that lobbyists had to pay to play. Trump promoted him to become his top aide. Meanwhile, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, one of the so-called self-described three amigos, who was put in charge of Ukraine policy by the White House outside of traditional diplomatic channels, announced that he's leaving his job by the end of the year. 
Perry's long-rumored departure comes as he's under growing scrutiny for the role he played in the president's Ukraine dealings. Perry was traveling with Trump to Texas when he notified the president of his decision aboard Air Force One. Trump said he already knows who will succeed Perry, but declined to identify the person. House Democrats have subpoenaed Perry for documents related to a Ukrainian state-owned energy company, as well as his involvement in the July 25th call between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The lawmakers have set a Friday deadline. It's unclear if Perry will comply. Trump has said Perry teed up that call. A spokeswoman for Perry says he wanted Trump to speak with the Ukrainian leader on energy matters related to U.S. efforts to boost Western energy ties to Eastern Europe. The Associated Press reported earlier this month that a circle of businessmen and major Republican donors touted their connections to Trump and Giuliani as they sought to install new management at the top of Ukraine's state-owned gas company last spring. Their plan, though, hit a snag when Zelensky won the election. But Perry took up the effort to install a friendlier management team at the company. Perry then attended Zelensky's May 2019 inauguration as the administration's senior representative, and he met privately with Zelensky. Congress is trying to figure out what exactly he said. And Jay Goldberg, a longtime friend and former lawyer for Trump, told MSNBC last night that Giuliani has a book of his Ukraine contacts that hasn't yet been subpoenaed, or at least not turned over. And if it is, could be harmful to the president. Goldberg says he's seen the book. He said he didn't believe there's enough in it to impeach and convict Trump. But he sidestepped questions when asked if the book will make it look like Giuliani broke the law. Goldberg also said he advised Trump back in March not to hire Giuliani as a personal attorney and said it's time for the president to cut ties with the former New York mayor because he's, quote, gone off the rails. And that's the big idea. Here are three other wild headlines that should be on your radar as the week comes to an end. Number one, Mulvaney, during that same news conference, also announced that Trump has decided to hold next year's G7 summit for the leaders of the world's largest economies at his own resort in Doral, Florida. This potentially runs afoul of the emoluments clause in the Constitution because it will require foreign governments to pay money to the company that Trump owns. Even if it's not unconstitutional or even if they can convince some judges or congressmen, Republican senators that it's not unconstitutional, it's certainly without precedent in modern American history. Trump's resort, set among bland office parks near the Miami airport, has been in sharp decline in recent years. According to the Trump Organization's own records, its net operating income fell 69 percent from 2015 to 2017. A Trump Organization representative testified last year that the reason was Trump's brand becoming toxic. Now, the G7 will draw hundreds of diplomats and security personnel to the resort during one of its slowest months of the year. If you've ever been to Miami, it's hot and muggy (laughs) in June. The hotel is usually less than 40% full at the time of the summit. It will also provide free publicity for the club. Mulvaney says Trump asked his staff to look into using Doral. He claimed there was then a rigorous nationwide search that examined 10 different sites. Mulvaney refused to say what other sites were vetted, just that they were all worse than the property owned by Trump. Mulvaney said the White House will not release any information about the selection process. Absolutely not, he said. The move reflects the total collapse of promises made by both the president and Eric Trump, his son and the day-to-day supposed leader of Trump's businesses. Both pledged at the start of the presidency to create total separation between private businesses owned by the president and his public office. 
Yesterday, the Trump organization said it's honored to have been chosen by its owner, the president, for this event. But the company would not answer questions about how much money it's going to make. Number two, Turkey agreed yesterday to a ceasefire that would suspend its march into Syria and temporarily halt a week of vicious fighting with Kurdish forces, while allowing President Recep Erdogan's government to carve out a long-coveted buffer zone far beyond its borders. The agreement, announced by Vice President Pence after hours of negotiations, appeared to hand Turkey's leader most of what he sought when his military launched an assault on northeastern Syria just over a week ago. The expulsion of Syrian Kurdish militias from the border and the removal of a U.S. threat to impose sanctions on Turkey's vulnerable economy. Pence says Turkey agreed to pause its offensive for five days while the U.S. helps facilitate the withdrawal of Kurdish-led forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces, from a large swath of territory stretching from Turkey's border nearly 20 miles south into Syria. After the completion of the Kurdish withdrawal, Turkey's military operation would be halted entirely, Pence says. The White House agreed to refrain from imposing any new economic sanctions on Turkey and to withdraw sanctions that were imposed earlier this week once the permanent ceasefire is in effect, as Pence put it. The vice president, who negotiated with the Turkish leader in the presidential palace in Ankara, portrayed the agreement as a hard-won victory and credited Trump's leadership. The deal, though, delivered Erdogan concessions he'd been unable to get during years of negotiations with the United States, and in many ways, it vindicated his decision to pursue military action instead. The rest of the region is watching, make no mistake. And afterward, a Turkish official, briefed by participants in the talks, told our reporters on the ground that the Turkish side was surprised and relieved at how easy the negotiations were. This official, an advisor to the foreign minister, said, quote, We got everything we wanted. Erdogan had prepared for a confrontational meeting, but the mood softened when it became clear that the U.S. officials were asking only for what the Turks regard as token concessions in order to take the heat off Trump politically back in the States. In return for the brief pause in fighting, the Turks refused to call it a ceasefire. There will be no sanctions. (laughs) The Turkish official said, quote, it was as easy a negotiation as we've ever had. Then, last night at a rally in Dallas, Trump celebrated the temporary ceasefire. He argued that it had actually been wise and strategically brilliant for him to allow Turkish forces to invade and massacre Kurds because, quote, sometimes you have to let them fight a little while. He elaborated that not one drop of American blood was shed and then added, like two kids in a lot, you've got to let them fight and then you pull them apart. Number three, heavy gunfire consumed the streets of Culiacan in Mexico as government security forces struggled last night to fend off members of the Sinaloa cartel, which was once led by the notorious drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Members of the cartel deployed across the city with military-grade weapons. It was a remarkable glimpse into their ability to overwhelm the state, and it was live-streamed for the world to see. Mexican officials briefly detained Ovidio Guzman, one of El Chapo's sons, who has emerged as a leading figure in the cartel since his father was arrested in 2016. El Chapo is in a supermax prison here in the U.S. But as the members of the cartel took to the streets, freeing dozens of prisoners and turning the city into an urban war zone, Mexican authorities decided to release Ovidio Guzman. Security Minister Alfonso Durazo told Reuters that Guzman was released in order to protect civilian lives. The decision to detain and then almost immediately release Mexico's most wanted drug trafficker 
who has been indicted by the U.S. Justice Department on a litany of very serious charges, is a shocking display of weakness for Mexico's government. This episode reveals how entrenched the country's leading drug cartel remains, even with El Chapo off the street. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, October 18th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. Thank you.